are continuing our series, and um, each time that I've been able to share this summer, I've been able to focus on the particular life of David, and we've been looking at a particular season of his life, the years before he was king. And I would like to continue to do that through the summer, um, just kind of looking at this hero of faith, because I think he has so much to offer in terms of access. He's so human. He's so real and relatable. But last we left David, just in terms of a point of a review, we left him on the edge of the palace grounds, having a conversation with his closest friend, Jonathan, who happened to be the son of King Saul. And the conversation, the nature of it was not the most pleasant. It was actually a conversation meant to alarm David. Because David had ascended to national fame and notoriety, and King Saul had recruited him into the royal courts and into his officer's club, if it were, as it were. And he saw him as an asset. But as David continued to succeed and succeed, something of Saul's insecurity started to dominate his demeanor. And whom he saw as an asset, now he saw, King Saul that is, saw David as a threat. And he systematically started to put in place a plan to eliminate David from the land of the living. It was on the edge of the palace grounds, out in the fields, that Jonathan ends up breaking the news to David. And ends up letting David know the the dreadful reality that he was no longer safe in the palace. And much more, he maybe was no longer safe in the entire region because his father, Jonathan's father, King Saul, was about to actively mobilize his entire military power in the hunt of one man. And that was David. And it's these words that cause weeping to ensue and desperation to start to grip a hold of David. And he ends up moving. He ends up seeking a refuge, a sanctuary. And it's his initial escape that we're going to spend some time with. As he seeks a sanctuary, we start to learn a couple things and see some things happen. But just so we can understand the lay of the land of what we're going to interact with here together, I've asked him to put a map up. And a lot of us may be familiar with the region um, that is around Jerusalem. We certainly have heard of the city of Jerusalem. And yet, this was not the capital of Israel in this time. Gibeah was the capital of the city. It was where King Saul decided to have his palace. This is where his headquarters were. Jerusalem wasn't even a city owned by the Israelites, if you could think of it that way. There were a group of people known as the Jebusites who lived there. And this, this is the region of the land. And so this is where he starts. David starts in the, in, the, in the capital, the nation's capital, in the palace, receiving terrible news. He moves, he runs away alone on his own to Ramah, where Samuel lives. Samuel is a widely respected figure. He is the God's spokesman, the prophet of the land, who ends up installing the first king, King Saul, who also ends up choosing his replacement who just happens to be David. And after having a conversation with Samuel, recognizes that safety will not be found there. It is not okay for him to be there. And so he moves from there, and this is where we start to pick up. He goes to Nov. And it looks like we should pronounce it Nob. But in Hebrew, it actually is Nov. And he moves to Nov, and he has a reason to go there. And he has his interaction there. And we're going to look at that a little bit more closely. And from there, he moves out to Gath. Gath is a region of, the place, of this, this area that is actually owned by the Philistines. It's the nation's capital of the Philistine territory. Just happens to be Israel's mortal enemies. And he has a terrifying encounter there. 
and he escapes by the skin of his teeth with his own life. And he moves from there and he goes to Adullam. And Adullam is a region, it's a mountain, it's a range, was filled with caves. And it's in the cave, which literally means, Adullam literally means refuge. And we will leave David for the time being. That is where we will end. We start with him in the palace. We end with him in the cave. All the while, David is seeking sanctuary. And it's here that we begin. We explore this together. If you open up your handout, we'll go ahead and read through this in 1 Samuel 21. We look in verse 1, and we're told that David went to the town of Nov to see Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. And he asked, why are you alone, he asked. Why is no one with you? And the king has sent me on a private matter, David said. He told me not to tell anyone why I am here. I have told my men where to meet me later. Now, what is there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. We see from the very beginning that David went to Nov because he knew something about that city that we may not be familiar with. He knew that city to be known as a city of priests. This is where God's people dwelt, God's servants, I should say. Because something else was significant in that town of Nov. The tabernacle of God was in Nov. And you and I may not know exactly what that means. It literally means tent. But it was in a time and place in Israel's history where worship was centralized, not decentralized, which is what you and I are used to. Having houses of God throughout the entire land, literally throughout the world. But in Israel's day and age, they had one location, and it was known as a tabernacle of God, and it happened to be in Nov. And the high priest, that is the highest level of human representation for God himself, was Ahimelech. And you see David from the very beginning leaving Samuel, and he goes to God's house. And what was even more important about God's house is not necessarily that that is where everyone went to worship, but what was even most significant is that is where God's presence dwelt among his people. And so he enters the tabernacle. And immediately, Himelech sees him, the high priest, and recognizes something is off. He recognizes David is alone. And he asks him, you can see it, he, he asks him, the author says it clearly, Himelech trembled when he saw him. Oh, why are you alone? Um, why, why is no one with you, David? This isn't right. Because the subtext is, David, you are a man of high regard. You are a man in the royal courts who, when you speak, people do things and listen. And when you act, everyone pays attention. You have extraordinary authority. And you never travel alone. You have an entourage. Your own bodyguard unit, your own men are with you everywhere you go. So why are you alone? What's going on? And if David thought that he could find sanctuary in God's very own house, this question, this alarming situation now with the high priest led him to believe it was not safe here any longer. And in his own desperation, we start to see the downward spiral of this man. Because what does he do? He actually steps into a very human thing to do. Not that foreign from you and I. Look at what he does. He says, the king sent me on a private matter. You know, it's, 
He sent me on a secret mission, which is an outright lie. There is no mission from the king. The king's mission is kill David. <laughs> David's mission is save my life. And he completely lies and he says, the king has sent me on a secret mission. And it just so happens that he told me not to tell anyone why I'm here. I wish I could tell you. I really wish, oh, how badly, but I can't. The king prohibited me. This mission is so secret, so important. I can't share with anybody. In fact, and I know even there, even there, I know it might seem odd that I'm alone because why would he send me alone on this important task? And so just so you understand, he, he adds another lie. He says, I have told my men where to meet me later. Don't worry. There are some men who are going to find me. We're going to meet up, rendezvous somewhere else. But right now, that's why I'm alone. So now that we've settled that, um, do you have anything to eat? Do you have anything to eat? And he asks them, he says, do you have, give me five loaves of bread, which is an idiom to say, do you have anything? Any pieces of bread will do or anything, whatever you might have. And the priest, maybe a little bit more settled, recognizing what's happening, he starts to respond. And we're told in verse 12, he says, we don't have any regular bread, the priest replied. But there is the holy bread, which you can have if your young men have not slept with any women recently, which is to say, are they ceremonially clean? Which is their custom. Don't worry, David replied. Ah, I never allow my men to be with women when we're on a campaign. And since they stay clean, even on ordinary trips, how much more on this one, especially since they don't exist? <laughs> right? And you start to see something develop. A little bit, we're having a little bit of fun with it. But here's the, thing, here's the deal that we start to see. See, once we take a step towards deception, what happens? We have to take another one and another one. And each compounding one has to cover the one before it. This is exactly in his angst. David shows, in a way, he's not different than you and I. But that in itself isn't the big deal. He ends up deceiving the priest, and he ends up calming the priest down to the point where it says in verse 6 that since there was no other food available, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. It had just been replaced the day, the fresh, that day with fresh bread. This is something that we would not be, we would not be able to really understand because this is such a different culture than we're used to, a different custom than, we're, than we are moving and operating in terms of even our own faith with God. But what we have to understand is that David, not only, the original readers would have seen this, David had not only just lied to anybody, he had lied to the human representation of God himself. That in itself would have caused the readers to take a step back. <sighs> David, um, you sure you want to do that? You're starting to mess with fire a little bit. Because obviously God knows the truth. Do you want to do that? But then, if that seems to alarm a little bit, this next piece is actually what truly puts him at risk. Because holy bread was actually part of the original structure of worship God commanded Moses to institute in the nation of Israel. And there were parts of the tabernacle that only the priests can enter and touch. And if we could understand this, to you and I, it's just bread. What's the big deal? It's a symbol. But to them, it was far from it. 
It was bread that was meant to be brought before God's very own presence and laid there. And it was only being partakes from the priest to emphasize one very clear idea that God is holy. And he is set apart from his people. Though he is near, he is not to be treated like any other person. He is not to be treated casually or cavalierly. His ways are meant to emphasize the fact, yes, he is near, but enter with reverence. And do not, do not mess with God. And what's more is that in Israel's history, they would find very easily examples of people who actually did treat God's ways, especially in his own house, cavalierly. And let's just put it this way. They didn't leave unscathed the severity of which would cause any original reader to, David, you are about to defile what is holy in your desperation. I'm not so sure this is a good move. And the priest ends up giving him the bread. And in one of the few moments in Israel's history, a moment Jesus would refer to, this moment he would refer to later, one author said it was, a, it was a moment in which God demonstrated such extraordinary mercy, not just because David had lied in his own house to his own servant, but because then David took what was holy and treated it as something was common. And God allowed David, one of the few times, God's holy bread became David's daily bread. And you and I, it's so foreign, but we must understand this is an extraordinary gesture of mercy and kindness to David. And he receives the bread. And as he receives it, he turns, and he, we're told in verse 8, David asked the Himalek, uh, do you have a spear or a sword handy? Um, you know, the king's business was so urgent. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even have time to grab a weapon, if you believe it. A warrior without a weapon. I mean, that is just unheard of, Right? But if you believe it, I, I had to go in such a rush. Not only did I not have the ability to have food, I forgot my weapon. I mean, what good am I on the road on this mission without a weapon? Do you have anything? Do you have anything in the house? And the, the, the priest says to him in verse 9, I only have the sword. I have one sword. It just, it's the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley. You remember? Do you remember? In the valley of Ella, the priest replied. It, it's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod, which is a, another instrument, tool of worship. Take it if you want, for there is nothing else here. I have no other weapon. I only have the weapon that you gave me that I received as a memorial for God's faithfulness over his people. Do you remember that time? And we can almost imagine David. He is on the run. He is seeking sanctuary. He is looking for safety. He's recognizing he's not going to find it here. He knows that Saul is on the move. He's going to hunt him down. It's only a matter of days before he catches up. And he's sitting there. And as he is sitting there, deceiving the high priest, the high priest says, well, I have one. It's the sword of Goliath. And you could almost, it's like it could have taken him back to a yesteryear, a day a day of David's innocence. A day in which David really walked onto the scene with very little concern or worry for his own well-being. 
A day when everything that he wore was confidence and boldness and courage with God. A day when he stepped into the valley and all of Israel was terrified by this giant, this champion of the Philistines. A day when he stepped in and proclaimed, look, listen, I come at you with God's hand upon me. He will overcome. And oh, what it must have struck inside of him, the irony of it all. In the moment of his fear and angst to be brought back to the place where it all began. To the place where God proved himself faithful. Almost as if, not done with you yet, David. Not done with you yet. David hears the words of Ahimelech and he says, there's nothing like it. And we see it, David replied, give it to me, I'll take it. It's the greatest sword I can get right now. And so David escaped from Saul and went to King Ashish of Gath. And in his downward spiral, he ends up plotting a plan. He, he thinks to himself, maybe in the land of Israel, I'm not safe. Maybe, perhaps, I can go to the land of my enemies, the land of the Philistines. And he goes there and he thinks to himself, maybe I'll hide myself. This is a day before, this is, this is long before any form of identification existed. No photography, no sketches, no, nothing of that nature. He's hoping maybe he could hide away. No one really knows who he is, perhaps. And oh, how wrong he was. It was almost as if the minute he crossed the border, his servants were, David's there. That's David. And they started maybe thinking they, they knew what he, he walked like. Maybe they heard about him. They knew what he, how he carried himself. Perhaps they had an idea of what he looked like. And they start questioning themselves. The servant of the king of, of the Philistines, King Ashish, arrests David. And they are now convinced this is him. And they are correct. And David is about to be brought. You could read it. But David is about to be brought before the king of his mortal enemy. The king of Goliath. His life is over. And as he makes his way to the courts, he's sitting there. And he, he's making his way. And he, he starts to think about how he's going to get out of this mess. Now the downward spiral quickly accelerating. He gets to a place where he decides to implement a plan, one that he had never implemented before or after. He starts to behave like a madman. And he starts to drool all over himself. And then he starts to speak in gibberish, first loudly, then quietly, speaking almost as if to himself, and starts to behave rather erratically, losing any sense of dignity along the way. And he starts to become a little bit more violent in his gestures, behaving like as if he is a man without his mind. His spiral has now gotten to the point where David is becoming undone in front of the king of his enemies. And in the midst of this erratic behavior, probably internally hoping something of this will work, told, I thought this was a little humorous, the king sitting there told, this is supposed to be David. This, this man, this is David? And he says, do I not have any, enough madmen in my country that you go out and find one and bring them to me? Why'd you do this? Surely this is not the one who was favored by King Saul and the entire nation. Surely this is not the one who orders men into battle and succeeds in every single campaign he goes into. Surely this is not the one who carries himself with respect and honor. Surely this isn't him. Get him out of here. 
And all the while, it actually was him. It actually was. And he escapes. And he makes his way to a doom. The caves of a doom. And it's there. It's there that he sits down. And you could, if you could see it this way, if we could imagine what it must have been like for him to be completely alone. He was there without any source of security, with very little food, no one to talk to, no promise to cling to. No hope that anything would ever really change. Everywhere he has gone, every place he sought sanctuary, he has been caught, he has been made, and he has been unsafe. And now in the cave, alone, away from everything and everybody he loves, possibly in the lowest place in his life up to that point, David finally discovers perhaps there is a sanctuary for him. Because in this time, historians believe he wrote three different psalms. And I thought it'd be good for us to just explore a couple of them. I asked him to put this up in Psalm 142. This is what he writes. In the midst of this cave, all alone, he says, When I am overwhelmed, you alone know the way I should turn. Wherever I go, my enemies have set traps for me. I have tried. I have tried everywhere. And my enemies set traps for me. I look for someone to help me to come and help me, but no one grieves me. No one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit what happens to me. I am all alone, God. And everywhere I have gone seeking a sanctuary, I have noted it is not safe. And the truth is, nobody even cares what's happening to me. I have no one. And it's almost as a last resort. He turns and what does he say? He says, then I pray to you, O Lord. I say, you are my place of refuge. You are all I really want in life. Hear my cry, for I am very low. Rescue me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. They're everywhere. Bring me out of prison so I can thank you. I feel so confined. But get me out of there and I will be grateful. The godly will crowd around me for you are good to me. You are good to me. Send people my way. Please, will you help me? Will you help me in my point of desperation? In my point of isolation? What does he discover? He discovers he had looked everywhere for a sanctuary. And really the sanctuary was the place where he turned his face toward God. And it was there. It was there that he discovered God was his refuge. The place was secondary. The one who inhabited the place was primary. And in the midst of this, you almost get the sense that God indeed actually ended up answering his prayer. Because you look in verse, 20, in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 22, we're told that David departed from there and escaped in the cave of Adullam. Who knows how long he was there alone, but he was. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And so what happens? What happens is that David is crying out for help. Eventually acknowledges, God, you're the only one who's my safety. You're the only one who's my refuge. And in the midst of that, he starts to see who? His brothers and his father. Which, by the way, years prior had forgotten him when Samuel came to choose the next king of Israel. Not counting him a worthy candidate. But these same family members were the first members who made their way to him. 
pushed out by King Saul's threats, no doubt, to anyone who was loyal to him, but pulled by the fact that David was there, their brother and their son. And oh, the joy, if you could imagine it, how he must have felt sitting alone in the cave, hearing the rustling of the bushes, seeing who's coming near the trail. And as he makes his way out towards the edge of the cave, he sees it's actually his family. Everything inside of him, if you could hear it, must have been so relieved. Those he loved, those whom he knew loved him, whatever, high or low, he knew it. He couldn't doubt it. They were here. And oh, thank you, God. Yes, you have answered my prayer. Yes, you have brought me my family. Thank you. And as the days progressed, who else starts coming? If, if he thanked God for his family, I'm not so sure he thanked God for this other group because they weren't exactly the cream of the crop. They weren't exactly the movers of society, the power brokers, the ones with resource and power and ability to help him. What type of people were they? Look at it. They, they were the people who what? Who were in distress. What condition was he in? He was in distress. Great. More distress. Okay. And then they were everyone who was in debt. Zero resource. No way to really attribute help. And then who else? Everyone who was bitter in soul. One author said, there was no larger gathering of malcontents in all the land <laughs> as there was in the cave of Adullam. David is unsure. His second song he wrote in this period. It begins in Verse 1 of 57, he says, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. I cry out to God, most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. Will you hide me until this danger passes by? We might think it's the danger of King Saul and his men. Scholars believe it's the danger of the men who immediately surrounded him. Because in verse 4, he describes something of a scene. He says, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. God, I am in the midst of a powder keg. I'm not so sure these men are going to help me. In fact, I'm a little worried what they're going to do. They can destroy each other at a moment's notice. They are so filled with violence in their soul. They're so angry. They are oppressed. And they're looking for vengeance. And this can become volatile quickly. And they have made me their leader. God, I'm not so sure this is the best way. Will you rescue me? Will you have mercy on me, please? This is not the ideal situation. You can almost sense David wanting to leave. And here's the deal. This is, this is important. And then we'll, we'll explore this a little bit. But what we might consider, what David considered the worst place for him to be actually became the ground floor by which God was going to build out something new and wonderful in his life. This became not the end of David, but the rerouting of David's life. Because what David didn't know yet is that these men, these 400 men, who were malcontent in the words of that author, actually were the men in which David ended up exercising his skill of leadership, his talent, and his gift. And he ended up forming them into a formidable force that roamed the land while in exile, protecting the defenseless and the vulnerable whom King Saul would refuse to defend throughout Israel. And in their exile, they would defend the defenseless. And if they did that, 
They would gain the reputation of becoming the mighty men of David to the point that when David became the king of Israel, they were the force that secured the walls around the nation and brought peace for many generations to come. David saw the bitter, the indebted, the distressed. God saw the men they would become. And what David thought may have been to his ruin, God had supplied to his benefit. It ends up becoming the first chapter in a wonderful season of David's life. One I hope we get to explore together. But in our moments here, remaining moments, I think this has some couple things for us to be able to glean from. Firstly, I like to put this up there, that what David shows us is, is something of a reminder. We need a sanctuary. We need a sanctuary to remind us life is bigger than our now. We are in desperate need of this. I, I say we in the collective manner. We as a society. Because David knew something about himself that we all too often ignore. Listen, David knew that he had a soul that required rest. He recognized, I'm going to suggest this, that life was not just purely about the physical. But there was actually something spiritually going on and rest that is not found by the hours of sleep we get at night. Rest that is found when we are reminded that the weight of the world does not rest, does not lay on our shoulders. That is the rest David was seeking. He found it in the cave when? When he turned his face toward God. And he was pulled out of the fact that life is much bigger than what his current circumstance confronted him with. And a lot of times in our own lives, we can get so caught up in the quick pace in the deadlines and responsibilities, in the aspirations and ambitions, in the measurements of success we are given all around us. And we could buy into this thought that life is about everything around us. And at the end of the day, if we want to forge a way forward, it is up to us to make it happen. And it rests on us and only on us. And if that's the case, if we find ourselves in that situation, if we ever adopt that way of thinking, can I just say that is a weight that is crushing our ability to breathe in the reality that God is up to something far bigger than what we can imagine. And it silences our ability to hear him, which is why we need a sanctuary a place we devote and we say, God, as much as possible, I will go there and I will be reminded that you are, you are bigger than my own life. You are bigger than the days of my life. You are bigger than the, than the frustrations or the troubles I am facing. That you are actually doing something. Will you pull me out of the immediate and urgent and will you start to help me see a larger horizon? Will you give me a different vantage point? This is what David was seeking. It is what we need. We're in one right now. We are in a sanctuary. This is known as a house of God. There are many throughout the land. And it is good for us to come once a week. It's very good. But can you hear this? It need not be a church building or a chapel or a steeple. It can be a beach. A sanctuary can be a garden. It can be a walk around our neighborhood. It could be the desert. It could be a mountain. 
a closet, or even our own car. It could be whatever we deem to set apart in our own lives and we say, Lord, as much as possible, when I enter this location, will you remind me that you are active in my life? Will you start to show me and speak to me? Will you help me start disconnecting from the urgency and the continual treadmill that I am running in? And will you help me pause, lift my eyes, and see what you're trying to do in my life? Will you help me step back and breathe you in? Will you help me cast my cares upon you? Will you help me receive nourishment for my soul? Will you help me rest? That is what we need. That is what he found. Secondly, what this reminds us of is that life, listen, God may, in our lives, God may give us an answer that is not exactly what we want, but it is what we need. It is. This is what happened to David. This is what he needed to discover. If we could hear it this way, what was the Psalm 57, some believe about? It was about escaping from the men God had sent him. These aren't men, these aren't the men he would have chosen for himself. It's like, thank you for my family. Really? Like these men, you couldn't have sent better ones? More ideal ones, trained ones? Ones that we could have gotten going? They're going to drag me down. And yet, perhaps that was God's answer. It was exactly what he needed to awaken something inside of David that he may have not known was there, the ability to train and form and strengthen men and call the best out of them because he had been deposited that from God himself. The best out of David only emerged when the circumstances were not ideal. Can you hear it? And a lot of times it's in conversations that usually when we have honest conversations, we are facing things. Relationship isn't as ideal as we would like it. The lack of a relationship is certainly not ideal. Our career is in a place we are frustrated. There are blockades. There are other things, goals and aspirations just seem to be hitting roadblocks and frustration. And the real request is not how to walk through this. The real request is, God, why aren't you changing this? Have you ever been there? Because if we're honest, it may happen more often than we'd like to admit. And the truth is, it's in the things we most want to escape from, and it's in the situations we most want deliverance from, that perhaps God is most involved in. And as someone once told me, perhaps it is not escaping from it that God will give us a path, but it is deliverance through it that God would show us the way. Because it is there that he will form our character. It is there that necessity will drive us to our knees. It is there that we will start to say, your way, God, I have none other. Help me make the best of this. The cave he sought to escape became the training ground. May that be the case for us. Because really what we get to see is that sometimes life's breakdowns, the breakdowns of life, they actually can become opportunities for a life-giving reroute. A life-giving reroute. Um, this is extraordinarily important. David thought he was at the end of his rope. 
He thought the days were over. The last box on the calendar, gone. Because he was consumed. And we might be there. We might be in a place of frustration. We might be in a place of actually, we're broken down. And we might not feel the strongest right now. We might feel rather weak, actually. And if that's not the case, <laughs> praise God. But can you hear this? Sometimes God allows breakdowns to happen in our lives because before we would ever be open to a new way, we need to see the way we hold on to so tightly crumble. We need to recognize it doesn't lead to life. And it is only then, when we recognize that, that we start to become a little bit more open. I don't know about you, I certainly know that's the case with me. To what God is actually trying to do. When we come to the end of ourselves. We say, God, you know what, okay, fine. It's some of us, <laughs> some of us may be exploring this journey with Jesus. This faith walk. And we have not committed ourselves. And we may be actually on the precipice of saying, you know what? For the first time, I earnestly want to commit myself to your ways in my life. I want to use your word as my compass. Not what culture says, but your value system as what directs my steps. I want to go your way, God. And if we're there, can I just say, we are on the first steps of an adventure that will be so life-giving and so strengthening to us. You have no idea. And there's nothing but excitement in me for you. Others of us, we may have been walking this out for some time. And we may have accrued a degree of knowledge and comfort with his people, his community, his word. We may have accrued a degree of understanding of how God operates, or at least we think we do. And we have, if we could hear it this way, now we are in a cave and it is not because something is said against us, but actually because God may want us to make the drop between head knowledge and heart knowledge. And God may actually want what we know about him to be something that we know of him, that we know him personally and intimately in a way no one else, no book can speak to us about. And it will not be something someone else has experienced. It will not be something someone else told us about or we have seen in somebody else's life. It will be something we will be able to point to in our lives if we are open to his reroutes, if we are open to what he wants to do in the midst of our own frustration, perhaps, can you hear this? To worship and experience him in the palace, that's one thing. To experience his faithfulness in the cave, well, there's just no comparison. In the value and in the riches that gives us. It leads us because God is not confined by circumstance. He transcends them. And all who trust in him are not defined by them. They overcome them. And they become catapults. That, and I'm not saying in the success we might imagine. I'm saying in the fact that confidence and conviction is built that is not easily rocked. That sustains us in the valley. And we start to recognize, if you could hear it, like the ancients experienced, water in the middle of the desert, food in the wilderness. That is what God does, a life-giving reroute.
May he do that in our lives. May he show us the way through whatever we're walking through. May he demonstrate his faithfulness. May he show us his ability to keep his promise, not to leave or forsake. May he help us run to his sanctuary. And may we embrace exactly what we need, perhaps what he has already given us. May this be the case. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving. The band's going to come up, share in a closing song. I would just like to pray over our final moments here together. Lord, just thank you. I thank you that you are a God who is far more aware of the details of our lives than we can imagine. And we may have come in here wondering if you're near. I pray we leave knowing you're closer than we thought, more active in our lives. And I pray that you would help us, God. I pray that you would help us seek your face, not just today, but throughout this week. Remind us that you carry the heaviest burden. And you invite us to walk with you through our journey. Help us, God, not be defined by our situations or our confinement. Help us seek you, receive strength from you, embrace what you've given us. Help us overcome, not because we're able on our own strength, but because you are faithful. You were faithful in David's life. And you don't choose favorites. I pray you be faithful in each one of our lives. May that be the case, God. May you strengthen us with your presence. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.